What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 62. Today we're joined with special guest Vincent W. Wright. And today we're talking about Sir Conan Doyle and his most famous of creations, Sherlock Holmes. How do these two great historical figures apply themselves to the field of archaeology? How did Doyle use archaeology to influence his writings about Sherlock Holmes? And how can we apply Holmes's methods to the field of archaeology? Get ready to think critically. Archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am joined today by Ken Fader. How's it going? Nice. It's going great, Sarah. How's it going? It's going. I also have my other co-host, Jeb Card, with us today. How's it going, Jeb? Hello, and it's fall and Halloween, so I'm happy. This is true. Yeah, Ken got snow on Halloween. Anyway. We, we got two inches of snow already. Right? <laughs> so we'll talk about it. Good God. Yeah, no, we did. We did. And today we have a special guest... Vincent W. Wright with us today. Vincent is a past president of the illustrious clients of Indianapolis. He is a Sherlockian, uh, has been for over 20 years. He maintains the blog The Historical Sherlock and the Facebook page. He is a published Sherlockian writer and has been publicly speaking for seven years. And Ken, why are we talking about Sherlock? Oh man, because because sure. Number one, I'm coming out of the closet tonight as a I was closeted before, but now I'm open about it. I am a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Love I've loved the stuff since I was a kid, and as an archaeologist reading through the 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 canon, the 56 short stories and the four novels, again and again and again, um, you see references to prehistory, to antiquity, and that Conan Doyle used that as this kind of weird backdrop to some of the evil goings-on in Victorian England. And so seeing that connection and how Sherlock Holmes as the scientist, the logical mind, addressing these things, I thought it's a perfect opportunity for us to talk about this view of archaeology as this kind of, as, as Jeb calls it, this kind of spooky, the spooky context, and to, sh- to show how Arthur Conan Doyle incorporated this into the into the canon, into the stories. And I figured since we were just three dweebish archaeologists, I would bring on a professional Sherlockian, which is why we have Vincent. How's it going, Vincent? It's going great. I'd watch the professional talk if I were you. I'm, I'm not sure I'm in that uh, that particular range, but I'll do the best so, I can. So Vincent, could you tell tell the folks who are the illustrious clients of Indianapolis? Where did you get that name from, and what, how does that re- relate relate to your Sher- Sherlockian um, study? I would love to. The illustrious clients of Indianapolis uh, were founded in 1947. 
Uh, we're celebrating our 70th year uh, next year, but we're celebrating it early this year. Uh, we're putting out a book next year to celebrate it, actually. It's a science society of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the uh, by invitation only society based out of New York, which is kind of our, I don't know if you want to call it a governing body, but it's its um, its the granddaddy of all the uh, Sherlockian societies in the world. Um, we are named after the story, The Adventure of the Illustrious Client. Um, I've been with them since 19, July of 1997. I was a Sherlockian just before that, but wasn't officially with a group. Um, it is an absolute joy to be a part of this group. We're a publishing society, so we're always putting out something, whether it be a book. Uh, one of our members is speaking somewhere. We're in a magazine. We're in a newsletter. Could be just about anything. But we are one of the most recognized and respected groups uh, in the country, if not the planet. What That's is fantastic. It, what does it mean that you're a science group? Is that part of the publication part? No, we're a uh, I'm sorry, science? Oh, I, I thought we're, you said you were a science We're a cyan society. Cyan. My bad. Cyan society, yes. Cyan. And the Baker Street Irregulars, those th those those characters show up in a bunch of the stories, right? They're the, the kids who Sherlock uh, hires for just a few tuppence to go out and kind of figure out what's going on in London. That's correct. The street urchins, the uh, ragamuffins, right. as they're also called, uh, they're, they're just a group of kids, uh, you know, really find out much about their their who they are specifically but their leader uh air quotes is a kid by the name of wiggins and as such the head of the the bsi the baker street irregulars is named wiggins nice. terrific all right so today we are combining sherlock and archaeology and speaking about conan doyle himself and his his mark on the field that we understand and just forensics and evidence-based right. reasoning. And so Ken, you want to get us started? Well, sure. You know, you know what I, I have in fact read the canon a couple of times. First a little, my background is I was, I got interested in Sherlock Holmes when I was just a, a, a wee lad growing up in New York where the local, the, you know, the local um, television stations had very little of their own programming other than the news and kids shows, but they constantly showed old TV shows and movies. So if you wanted to watch Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy or the Three Stooges, you watched either Channel 5, 9, or 11. But one of the things they also did was they had old movies that were constantly being played. And among those movies in their, in, you know, in their, um, shown on these shows were the old, uh, 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios Sherlock Holmes stories um, that starred Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And so for me, that was Sherlock Holmes, that, that Watson was this bumbling kind of buffoon, and of course played by Nigel Bruce, and Sherlock Holmes played by Basil Rathbone was the, the erudite, incredibly intelligent, logical, emotionless uh, mind who solved all of these crimes. And I just, I fell in love with those stories again, back when I was a kid, but it wasn't until the Granada, which the, the television, uh, British TV, um, began to assiduously, very carefully redo these stories with, with Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes that I realized, wait, this is, this is a different story. This is a completely different Watson. Um, and then uh, that inspired me to read the stories. And I saw that, yes, the, the Granada series was far truer to the intent of Arthur Conan Doyle than had been the, 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 the movies made in the 1939 through the 1940s. And that inspired me to go and actually read the, read the stories, which I absolutely fell in love with. And as an archaeologist, I noted um, how, how often Conan Doyle used 
the archaeological backdrop, especially of the Moors of Cornwall, especially of the wild and primitive areas that Sherlock Holmes was sometimes called upon, in, in, in which he was called upon to, to solve crimes. And I, I thought it really interesting that the nature of how Conan Doyle used archaeology and the Hound of Baskervilles is a really good example, where so much of the backdrop of this, these awful and paranormal events with the Hound from Hell all takes place within the context of the Moors that are littered with these prehistoric remnants of the, the, the ancient people lived in, in that territory. The spookiness of the story, the, 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 the wildness of the story, the inexplicability of what had, what was happening in this area of Devon, uh, Devonshire was all, um, kind of informed by what was, what had gone on in the past, this archaeological record. I thought that was really incredibly fascinating. And then, meeting Jeb and talking to Jeb, his concept of the spooky archaeology, it all sort of clicked and it all made sense why Conan Doyle used archaeology as the backdrop for these stories that were also intrinsically and inherently spooky. Yeah, and I I would absolutely uh, agree with all that. And thanks, you know, Ken, for uh, oh, no, for a little shout out there. Uh, the other thing I would point out is, of course, this wasn't just a random place that was picked. In, in addition to all the, the Neolithic uh, stones and all of that, uh, as we talked about in our mummy episode, uh, the the friend of Conan Doyle, uh, Fletcher, Fletcher uh, is it Robertson, I believe? Robinson. Robinson. Uh, I, I always confuse those two, was very much involved in no small part by Conan Doyle in the unlucky mummy business, which we kind of covered. So I don't want to really go over it too much here, but we can maybe come back to it. Well, I'm sure it'll come up again. Yeah. So, Vincent. Um, I'm glad this isn't a debate of any kind, because there's absolutely nothing that Ken or Jeb said that I can disagree with in any way. No, no, no. I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not trying to right. not trying to put you on the spot and asking you to. Um, but building off of uh, Ken's observations of the Hounds of the Baskervilles, and uh, what was the other one, Ken? Um, the Devil's Foot is another one, again, where, you know, the, these people are driven mad and a couple of folks die, but the backdrop is, it happens, I mean, one of the interesting things, just to go back a little bit, is that when you read the canon, you see that there's a whole bunch of the stories are centered in Victorian London, and those crimes are, in a way, pedestrian, and I, by that I only mean it's, it's, it's simple criminality. There are bad guys stealing stuff. There are bad guys killing people. And Holmes is called in to solve those cases. Right. But then a bunch of the cases also happen outside of the city, outside of urban London and in the countryside. And in both cases, the backdrop is like a character in the story. It's one of the reasons why I don't like it when people update the story. I, I'm sure that the, the TV show Sherlock with ben, Benedict Cumberbatch, I'm sure it's wonderful. Everybody tells me, oh, the acting is great. But it bothers mm -hmm. me when you take it outside of the context of Victorian London. That's an important part of the story. But it's also the case that the, 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 the moors, the, the wild areas outside of London, that their wildness and their strangeness are incorporated by Conan Doyle almost as if that's a character in the stories. So that if the devil's foot, again, where these people are driven insane and a couple of people die, if it happened in London, it would have a completely different context and a completely different, completely different meaning than if it's happening out there in this wild countryside where all kinds of strange things can happen. And it's Sherlock Holmes who's called upon to solve it. Uh, it sounds like you're talking it, about the traditional Gothic. Uh, in, in a sense, yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
And, um, and I mean, I think the, the, the great trope in, uh, I think it's the, yeah, I think it's in the devil's foot. The great trope is that Sherlock Holmes is having like a, a nervous breakdown because all of this, all of this pressure to solve all these crimes in London and he's bored. And, and so they leave, they go into the countryside for relaxation. And I think even, I believe it's in devil's foot where he and Hol- where Holmes and Watson to kind of kill time and to relieve stress go out walking the moors looking for arrowheads. So they're actually surface collectors. That is and absolutely the, correct in every yeah, way, yes. Yep. And the, but the trope is that here he is going someplace to relax by the sea, and of course, something incredibly spooky, incredibly and tragic occurs, and so the local people say, hey, that the, the famous detective is here, let's see what he thinks. <laughs> and of course, though, that's Watson thinks this is a terrible thing that, oh, my, we've come here to rest and relax. And, of course, Holmes is absolutely in his glory because now he's got something really interesting and strange on which he can focus. But, again, the context is and if I'm not I'm pretty sure that in the Granada series, they actually filmed this in in Cornwall because I recognize some of the megalithic sites oh, that nice. Holmes is walking by. Like, oh, that's Lanyon Coit. Well, that's the hurlers, and I've been there. So, yep. They, but but again, even in ter- in this modern context, they're using that that scenery, the spooky, the moors, the the tours, and the 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 marshlands, and using those as this kind of again, it's it is very gothic. This kind of this complete otherness. This so, other worldliness. So, Vincent, can you tell us a little about the the Devil's Foot? The I mean, not the story itself, but the archaeology it's that Ken's talking story. about. It it's is a, a great, great story, story, but yeah. can you give us? Can you fill us in a little bit on the details? Because I suspect you might be a little sharper on them. No offense, sure. Ken. It's been a while since I've read the Devil's Foot. Uh, I actually did a column on it. Uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Um, and what I remember specifically about it is a sad little tidbit: is that. Uh, Hound of the Baskervilles and Devil's Foot are the only two stories in the entire 60 stories that actually mention the word Neolithic. Nice. Uh, right. Yeah. And where uh, Hound of the Baskervilles and Silver Blaze are the two that take place at Darkmoor. Um, right. But but getting back to Devil's Foot, uh, it, it, it concerns a root that has been discovered by somebody who wants to perform a nefarious deed, uh, a revenge kind of thing, um, and uh, invites people over and... and Heats this thing up, and the, the room fills with acrid smoke, and uh, um, people actually die. So Holmes and Watson uh, are there on vacation, just as Ken said, and they are in fact out looking for arrowheads and any kind of relics that they can find laying on the ground. Um, Holmes kind of figures out exactly what's going on, so he decides he's going to try this this poisoning to see if how effective it actually is, and him and Watson almost die as a result of it. And at the end, uh, very close to the end, when they are both at their limit, uh, they somehow manage to get out of the room and get into fresh air. And it's one of the few times that we actually see Holmes show any kind of emotion um, and asking Watson, tell me you're all right. My God, tell me you're all right. And it's it's one of the absolute few moments whenever Holmes refers to any kind of providence or, or higher power in a way that is that is. Um, uh, emotionally based, um, so it's it's quite unique in that particular aspect. It's a great story, um, and is it is it, said, is it one of his? Did get filmed in Cornwall? It did, as a matter of fact. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Is it one of his later stories? Because I know Baskerville's was one of the middle stories. Uh, well, Baskerville was written in nineteen oh uh, uh, nineteen ten, 
And it's supposedly said in 1901. He wrote it after after eight or nine years after having killed off. Right. The that's King what Rider. I thought. Isn't it like the first story after uh, the Reichenbach Falls? That is exactly right. Okay. Yes. It's reminisce of John Watson, not as an actual new case. It uh, just happens to be one of one that Watson had laying around. Right. 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 Uh, and uh, decides to put it out, and therefore the character was brought back into the populace, and everybody was happy, and there was much dancing. <laughs> uh, Silver Blaze was actually published in December of 1892, so I wouldn't call it... Actually, it was published right around the time that uh, Conan Doyle published the short story Lot 249. Mm. Are you familiar with Lot 249? No, I'm no. not familiar yes, with that, the story that, itself, but I that's, need... Sorry. I get the feeling that Jeb probably is. Yeah, yeah. Go, that's Jeb. the That's the... That's the uh, first, really, like, let me control a mummy to attack, and, and I don't think he murders anybody. They just kind of, like, get, like, ruffled a little by, by this, like, not so much killer mummy, but just, like, rude assaulting mummy. Exactly. Uh, that's that's <laughs> controlled <laughs> with a, uh, and I, I have I have to, uh, I have to give the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast uh, some credit, because they made a great big deal about the deep ineffectiveness of this killer mummy uh, in their coverage of that story. <laughs> But that is often looked at as one of the first, like, evil mummy stories, Lot 249. Yes. And it's really funny. You, you said 1890, 18, um, uh, what was the date for the Silver Blaze? 1892. The, the, that's the projectile points one? Silver Blaze was 1892. I believe she asked about Devil's Foot, come to think about it. So. I did, well, that one's okay. nine, That one's 1910 in the publication date. But the, the which one is the one with the uh, finding the stone, the projectile points? That's, that's, that's Devil's the Devil's Foot. Foot. That's, oh, yeah. that's really interesting because we've talked, we've recently, recently talked about Arthur Machen and his stories about fairies yes. and his, the shining, uh, pyramid is very Holmesian. Like it's got some very obviously based on Holmes and Watson style detective duo. And that's all about finding, and that's in 1892. That's all about finding projectile points, which are arranged in strange ways. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they're connected, but, uh. That's just sort of an interesting little uh, connection. Yeah, I'm not sure how much they're connected. I had somebody actually send me an article that they had written. I get that a lot. People send me a lot of articles to proofread um, about that particular connection. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, I was actually unfamiliar with it for the most part. I mean, I knew something about it, but I read it. I I thought it was interesting, and they told me they were going to go ahead and publish it. I have no idea if that's happened or not. This is only recently. So uh, it could be appearing in a, in a publication somewhere that I just don't know about. But there is, in fact, somebody else out there that is making that connection. I would personally suspect it is not a causal connection. But, you know, if somebody's got a better argument, I'm willing to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, if you're that person and you publish that article, feel free to send us a copy to archiefantasies.gmail. The Devil's Foot has one of my one of my many favorite lines. Where the where one of the people who is being is suspected of being um, the, uh, the the guy who's been poisoning people, um, Holmes follows him for an entire day, and then when Holmes confronts him, he mm-hmm. talks about all the places he that where he has seen him, and the guy said, "How is this possible? I never saw you following me." And Holmes's response is, "When I follow somebody, that's exactly what they can expect." Yep, yep. That's what he says, <laughs> which is which is kind of wonderful. You follow me, I saw no one. That is what you may expect to see when I follow you. <laughs> there you go. There that's you a go. great line, yes. It's a wonderful line. It's a one- Well, that's that line and the um, the uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime is another wonderful line. From, that's from Silver Blaze, right? Yeah, that's from the Silver Blaze. That's uh, yeah, tell people that's what explain. Would you, Vincent? Would you explain people that line? People quoted a lot. There's a play. There was a play on Broadway that took that as its title. 
Tell people what that what, the context of that line. There's also a book by a man named uh, Mark Haddon who put out a book uh, about an autistic young boy who finds a murdered dog or a, a That's dead... the play. Yeah, the play is, is that based play on the based book. On? Okay, yeah. okay. Same thing. So there's our there's our six points of connection there. Um, uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Um, specifically talks about the fact that the the dog that is living at uh, King's Pyland, which is where Silver Blaze the horse, the uh, the uh, championship race horse or quarter horse, I remember exactly, is uh, yeah, is being uh, um, uh, housed and and and, right. uh, and maintained. The dog actually doesn't make any noise the night that the horse uh, disappears. And the famous line, the dog that did nothing in the nighttime, refers to the fact that the dog must have known the person who snuck into uh, the stable area to uh, to right. do the damage. So that's what it's referring to specifically. Yeah, yeah when, when the, uh, the the local constable is talking to Holmes about what had happened, and he says, there's there's absolutely, there are no clues at all. And mm-hmm. Holmes says, but well, there is the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Mm-hmm. And the constable says, well, but the dog did nothing yeah, in the nighttime. Right. And he says, that's the curious incident. Right. Yes, so this wonderful, ironic line. Can I get um, a feeling sometimes now that you and I are sharing a brain, buddy? So, uh, <laughs> oh, man. And that, this, pretty this wild. Is, this is great stuff. Now, yeah. You know, um, I don't know if we want to start now or in a little bit, to, to then focus a little bit on, on Conan Doyle himself and, you know, why? What's his deal? We've got we've got to have these various stories in which that are this archaeological context. So, what's where does Conan Doyle come from in all of this? And also the notion, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, how Arthur Conan Doyle is a spiritualist, and we might might um, characterize him as being really credulous and gullible about this stuff. But here he creates a, a fictional mind that is the absolute antithesis of that logical and rational and and how why there is that juxtaposition and what where that comes from in conan doyle and we could start that now or we could start that after the break well we can start that after the break but we still got about five minutes then okay vincent have you written fiction yes yes jeb have you yeah. written fiction um not anything published no oh fair enough ken um i've got a couple things but nothing published okay so here's my argument uh, you know leading us up to break um because we we kind of talked about this at the end of last episode. I'm not sure if it made it into the show notes, but anyway, um, where we were uh, where we were talking about, you know, Conan Doyle fell for he was a spiritualist. He fell for the fairies and all of that, but he, yet he still wrote Sherlock, who is this you know machine of logical thinking. And my thing was people try to combine the two people, the character and the, the author, and I think that's an error. And Ken, you didn't decree completely agree with me on that. No, I wouldn't talk to you for weeks. Right, right. I was, I was really worried. I had to send a fruit basket and everything. And and I'm not as harsh as Ken, but I would also possibly not entirely agree. See, I personally, I personally don't think that Conan Doyle identified with the Sherlock character. I think Conan Doyle identified with Watson. And oh, I, I think that for that several I, different reasons. Watson, that I Watson, agree with, yeah. Watson's right, which also means Conan that... Conan Doyle is a physician, sure. Right, right, right. And it's not just the similarities between Conan Doyle's history and Watson's history. It's, I mean, that's, those are just incidental character traits. I mean, mentally, I think he put more of his own personality into Watson than he put into Sherlock. Yeah. Which would be why yeah. Sherlock was, you know logical and emotionless and had other pretty much like inhuman character traits whereas watson was the one who was capable 
of emotion, capable of feelings. He's the one that got married. He's the one that moved out. He's the one that moved on with life, where Sherlock yeah. was always stuck in a rut. Yeah. Unless yeah. Watson, Watson was there. Watson definitely liked the ladies. In any one of a number of the stories. He, yeah, he did. Oh, hello. Hello, young woman. Yeah, he's like, yeah. Commenting on there. Look, I think, I think we're, we're, we're arguing cross purposes here. It's, it's absolutely the case that, that Conan Doyle sees himself as Watson. Watson's chronicling this. And, and Vincent, you can jump in at Conan any Doyle point here. Doing. But, but the thing is that, does, that still leaves open the question of why does Conan Doyle, who has very, very strong opinions about the occult and paranormal, why does he create a character, the hero of 60 stories, four novels, 56 short stories, who is in fact very much, and we'll talk about this as well, there are very specific cases in, in, the, in the canon where, where Sherlock Holmes isn't just logical and skeptical, he specifically is dismissive of the paranormal. Right. And that's, it's interesting that Conan Doyle would create a character like that and go back to that well again and again and again. I actually would like to make a, a quick point. Have you all seen the 1927 interview with Arthur Conan Doyle, the only yes. known? Yes. Okay, yes. he actually refers to Watson as Holmes's rather stupid friend. Aww. I know, which is terrible. He does. He does. That's exactly how he says exactly But he doesn't he write him that way. I, I know, and that's the amazing thing. So I'm not sure how much he sees the personality and and uh, intelligence level of Watson as opposed to the, the personal history, the war history, and the, the, the doctor. Right, uh, yeah. So I, I I don't know how much I can say I think that he identified with Watson, but I can answer when we get back from the break the reason that he come up with this this logical thinking machine um, and and why he pressed on for sixty stories in doing so, and I can answer to the skeptical part of Holmes's nature. I actually wrote something. The very first thing I ever wrote that was published was called the Skeptical Sherlock Holmes, where I laid out that Holmes was in fact. Uh, a very skeptical uh, person when it came to the paranormal or God or religion of any kind. Right, um, well, these are all great talking points. All right, well, let's go awesome. to break real quick. And when we come back, we will let Vincent have the floor. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back and we are still talking with Vincent Wright. And can you tell us uh, about Conan Doyle's interpretations and of Sherlock Holmes? His interpretations of Sherlock Holmes. Um... Well, his is uh, maybe that wasn't the right word. You were talking well, before the break about skepticism in Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about Sherlock Holmes' skepticism? So, so yeah. If you talk, maybe start off by talking about Conan Doyle, the man, and and his embrace of the paranormal, and then we can talk about the the, the apparent disconnect between him personally and this brilliant, logical, skeptical mind that he creates in literature. It is quite. It is quite a thing whenever a group of us get together, and I get together with um, with with Sherlockians and Homesians and Doyleockians. Uh, <laughs> all those yes. um, Poor Watson gets left out. There's no Watsonians. Well, there, there are Watsonians, yes. Oh, I just okay, okay. say it, but um, it's 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 amazing to me how ignored that particular aspect of uh, of Conan Doyle's life can be. 
it's it's almost as if we're we're so enamored with his creation of Sherlock right. Holmes, Watson, and all the other characters that we're that we're just so willing to sweep it under the rug and forget about it. The the Sherlockian Sherlockian way of thinking is quite unique in literature, I think, in that we have taken the character itself, which is much more famous than the author, and we've relegated the author to a to a a minor character in the whole thing. And we call it the game, which the game means that we actually pretend that Watson and, and Holmes were real people and that all the cases were real occurrences. And in doing so, we had to find a spot for Conan Doyle. And Conan Doyle had to be had to be basically dropped a level down to the publishing agent or Watson's publishing friend. Uh, that's right. lost real well with everybody. There are certain people in our hobby, in our world, specifically Doyleakians, who are very adamant that that is unacceptable as opposed to Sherlockians and Holmesians who say it's got to be that way if we're going to play the game. Um, Vin, Vincent, I, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt too much, but have you read out of curiosity, Michael Saylor's as if modern enchantment and the literary prehistory of virtual reality. Are you familiar I, with this book? I have not. It's, it's basically, I don't want to get into it too much. It's basically looking at fandom and the idea of imagined realities. He talks about what you're talking about right now and his three case studies. And you'll know quickly why I, I noticed it are the Sherlockians, the Lovecraftians and the Tolkien people. You might want to check it out. So I, I, all right. Anyway. Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you for, for letting me know about that. That interests me. Um, Doyle's later life, uh, when he decided that, um, that spiritualism was was the path that he was going to choose. And uh, during the time whenever a home story was just kind of whipped out in a day or two, um, in fact, it was uh, one of his daughters who said the popularity of homes at the time determined whether or not we went on vacation for a week or a month. <laughs> um, so a lot of the later stories get a lot of uh, uh, ribbing because they're not quite as good and the, the tidbits aren't as good and the 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 crossover of facts are a little murky so we know that uh in the last i don't know 10 12 15 years of writing the home stories he absolutely just didn't want to do it anymore he he was sick to death of the character uh had already killed him off once uh the world kind of went crazy and he brought the character back we i am not a doyle expert his his life believe it or not doesn't interest me nearly as much as his creation Huh. <laughs> um, but I do have a whole whole bookshelf full of books about the man, and I have read uh, some of them. I'm I'm not sure where he stepped off and and decided that um, to to become interested in something that was absolutely mirror image of what he had been so popular for. Uh, I I don't know where that disconnect is, but um, he certainly seems to have. I don't know how to put it exactly. He um he 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 got tunnel vision. He had the blinders on when it come to spiritualism. Didn't even believe Houdini when Houdini did a magic trick right, right in right. front of him, where he just decided, "You're not a magician. You're actually you're actually a rubber man here. You you this stuff can't be done by a regular human being. So you must be uh, you must be an otherworldly creation because it just isn't possible." You know, what's so, interesting about that is that the amazing Randy, the magician who's also an art skeptic, has one of my heroes, he's experienced exactly the same thing that he has done, replicated what people said this is psychic. He's replicated that this is completely magic, and they have accused him of somehow he's lying. He really is using psychic power, and for some reason, he's trying to fool people. So that's exactly the same thing yeah. that apparently you're saying happened in the case of Houdini and Conan Doyle. 
That's correct. Even though they were friends for most of their lives, right. even and even though uh, Houdini spent his time uh, debunking these 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 mediums and these these uh, these 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 fakirs that uh, Doyle still decided that one he was worthy of being friends with, uh, I guess in some insightful way into uh, into the spiritual world. But I I, I just the more I read about a subject like that, the more I read about uh, Doyle's Doyle's inability to accept the the what's right in front of him that's being proven mm. to him. Uh, I, I'm confused by that. And I know that others have written entire tomes about this subject. I I have not read about it quite as much, but I had to dive into it some right. when I wrote uh, my article about ten years ago. I mean, usually there's some connection, whether it's chronological, sequential or not. I don't know. With um, the the death of is it Doyle's son in during World War One? That's that, correct. That kind of pushed him off the deep end, and he desperately wanted to believe that he could communicate with the spirit of his dead son. But he yeah, was already, I, but he was already doing it. Yeah, it's a, well, it, you know, he apparently dabbled in this stuff a lot uh, leading up to uh, the Great War and the, the death of Kingsley. Um, he he was fascinated. I mean, he was a Freemason. He was fascinated with the mystical topics. I think that's why they crop up in the Sherlock stories as often as they do. And in his other writings, um, I think people forget that Conan Doyle wrote other things. And one of the reasons he killed off, this is my understanding, one of the reasons why he initially killed off Sherlock was because he didn't want to write about him anymore. Right. And he That's wanted correct. to focus on the other stories he wanted to write. And then the world lost its collective mind and he brought Sherlock back. Um, right. He actually says... Uh... He takes me away from better things. Yeah, he, he and right. I think that's why his writings for Sherlock were so noticeably different. Um, the second half of the stories that he wrote was because he was resentful of it. Yeah, but yeah. that's what paid the bills. So you know, yes, <laughs> right, exactly. It did, exactly. and 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 curiously, when he did decide to pick up the pen again, uh, when he lived at Undershaw, which is a home he built specifically for his his wife, um, he wrote The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is the quintessential best known right. greatest Sherlock Holmes story there is. After that, it kind of kind of takes the beating a little bit. Yeah, but he was he was fascinated with the concept of psychics and with um just other forms of he was really into psychic research and and that kind of stuff. I guess he even created a, the he was a founding member of the Hampshire Society for Psychic uh, Research that he formed in 1889. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. I was also the member of the London-based Society for Psychic Research as well. Yeah, and, and, and the unlucky mummy that I mentioned is in two thousand or two thousand eight. In nineteen oh seven, nineteen oh eight is when he basically says, "Elementals killed my friend Robinson uh, because of this unlucky mummy he wrote about." That's you know years before the the first right. war. I mean, yeah, so, it, it's, so it's, it's unclear what really triggered this interest, what set him on this path. I think I think he just always had this interest in general. And I mean, it was very popular at the time to be into these kind of things. Yeah. I think he I, just I, had I, the interest. And then with the, the compounded stress of the war right. and then the loss of his son and he lost both right. of his I think both of his wives died before he did as well. That's correct. Um, right. I think he just was surrounded by death and he turned yeah. to this as a form of comfort. Well, and in the in elite elite British culture, this was a lot more forgivable right. than it is today. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And now, Vincent, I want first. I want to say something. And first is that you you mentioned uh, during the break that you had written, or maybe it was before, uh, you had written something about um, 
about Sherlock Holmes and his his skepticism about the paranormal. And I, I got to tell you, I'm really super disappointed because <laughs> I independently wrote a short essay about that. And I thought, and now I find out that I didn't need to have written that because you already have. <laughs> uh, well, I have. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of my one of my society mates, if I can coin a term tonight, uh, a man by the name of Steve Doyle had written one uh, almost simultaneously with me for another uh -huh. book. And there, right. there are certain certain passages that were that were kind of creepily similar, but uh, we came well, to listen, the conclusion. It was the psychic yeah. vibes. I, I will I will get your email address and I will send you a copy of my essay. But what what I would like to do now maybe is if we could talk about that. Can you sure. talk about very specific instances in the canon where where Sherlock Holmes says something about the paranormal about whatever you know, about paranormal the occult that absolutely is something that that Conan Doyle himself would would disagree with right um I, one of the, one of the big lines that uh, that pops up from time to time uh whenever people are trying to prove that Holmes had no interest whatsoever in the um in the paranormal was I'm trying to remember specifically where this uh this line comes from but he he is talking about I believe it's the Sussex Vampire, which is one of the few stories we have that that hints at something supernatural before you right. pick up uh, the, the and start reading it. Um, he says, um, "No ghosts need apply." He's talking yes. about it is right. Sussex Vampire. Yeah. It's, the world is big enough for us. No, that's ghosts exactly need right. Apply. No, no yeah. ghosts need apply, and and we find examples like that. Um, uh, I. I with specific statements like that, probably, I don't know, half a dozen, nine times in the canon, whereas we find uh, statements about um, uh, the hand of God or prayer or something like that, about half of that, maybe three or four times. So it weighs pretty heavily toward uh, Holmes definitely being, uh, I don't know if you want to apply agnostic or a atheist or atheist or anything like that to it, but uh, certainly toward the, the skeptical side of it. But at the time, um, with with Christianity, religion, Roman Catholicism, those kind of things were very, very much more common than they are now. It was no big deal to believe in God. You didn't question it. It's just part of your life. Right. Uh, and Holmes was, was uh, you know, a part of that world. And so I think there's a there's a nugget of it still left in the back of his brain that he pulls out every once in a while in a moment of great stress, um, which happens to be the way a lot of people do it, I think. Right. Um, but for the most part, I, I, I honestly believe that Holmes was, in fact, a, a deep skeptic. Yes. Right. And what's, what's I, what I find really interesting is that are the instances in the canon where very specifically something horrible or tragic happens. The Sussex Vampire is one example. The Hound of Vaskervilles is another. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and the Devil's Foot is another, where very specifically at the very beginning of the story, when, when Holmes is brought into the case, he is told by a local person, there may be a paranormal agency afoot here. There may be something, there may be a vampire, there may be a, a, a supernatural paranormal gigantic phosphorescently glowing hound from hell. Right. And, and Holmes very explicitly responds to that by saying, this is madness. Uh, in the case of the Sussex Vampire, he says, what, after he's told about the, about the possibility that this woman is actually a vampire and is feeding off the blood of her infant child, that, that Holmes says to Watson, this is madness. 
Mm-hmm. The Walking Dead sucking. This, this is not. And in a number of those cases, Holmes expresses a really nice version of Occam's Razor, and essentially says to Watson, "We have to eliminate all of the kind of sensible and and reasonable explanations before we surrender to a paranormal explanation." Mm-hmm. He does that. Yeah, that's something I call Sherlock's Razor, as a matter of fact. So. And, well, there you go. I mean. <laughs> yeah. and he, he really does rephrase it when when Doctor Mortimer in the beginning of the Hound of the Baskervilles shows up at his offices at, at, at Baker Street and says, you know, the, everybody says he died of a heart attack and that's what the inquest says, but something else is going on and people are hearing this this hound from hell and there's a story that haunts this family. Uh, and again, Holmes is Watson seems almost more amenable to that. Is, is it possible where Holmes is immediately immediately says this is this is crazy? Um, right. I think he says in the case of the Hound of Baskervilles, if there's something paranormal going on, then we can be of no help because this is outside of the realm of what I'm used to dealing with. That's but exactly he, what he says. Yeah, well, yeah. he doesn't say it that way, but yes, you're right. Uh, he says that if uh, uh, something like if the devil uh, himself appears here, well, I'm pretty powerless against that. You know, yeah, exactly, exactly. But he does say things like, rubbish, Watson, rubbish. What have we to do with walking corpses who can only be held in their grave by stakes driven through their heart? It's pure lunacy. That's so, that's uh, it. That's from the yeah. Sussex vampire. Yeah, exactly. And so he does. I mean, he does have that 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 anger uh, about this subject uh, when it when it's pop when it's when it's presented to him. Yes, it's there. Yeah, he's dismissive of it. And which to get back to to Sarah's point. Well, sure. I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle is not Sherlock Holmes. Let's right. not mistake the two. I agree with you. I mean, I've, I've always made that argument when people say that. Well, Plato said that Atlantis was real. I say no, 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 no. Plato didn't say it. Critias, a character in a dialogue, said it, and yet ultimately Plato wrote it, but he put those words in Critias's mouth. We can't say that's what Plato thinks. And, right. and in this case, that's exactly true, because Conan Doyle put something in Sherlock Holmes's mouth. That's something that Sherlock Holmes would say. It's not what, what Conan Doyle believes. But I think it, and Jeb has pointed this out too, it does, it does raise this really interesting question. Why would Conan Doyle create a character who's who's at his core is fundamentally has an antithetical um, perspective from from Conan Doyle. That's really an interesting issue. Well, in my my take on that, my my kind of addition here before before we kind of get like, an answer to this is I think my my problem with it, my problem with the sort of you can't identify them. I, I agree. They're not the same people. But Holmes is about rationality versus irrationality. Everybody else around him is at least somewhat irrational because either they don't see things that they should see, they don't consider things they should consider, and he's literally inventing as he's writing these the idea of the rational detective that brings through rationality closure, or not even closure, but like solution. Right. Conan Doyle is living in a period where modernity is rapidly changing that exact question. So I don't think you can create homes and then not be compared when you also are engaging with the same issue of rationality versus irrationality and modernity versus pre-modernity in being a spiritualist or dealing with fairies because all of that's basically sort of a rejection of – in fact, I think a very purposeful rejection of modernity. It's kind of like for me. This is – this I think annoys me or bothers me because one of my core arguments in, 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 the, in the spooky archaeology book is everything we do is about origins – and myth and it making sense to people. And if you're like, well, no, I just study agricultural patterns. I'm like, that's not why anybody cares about archaeology. It should be in many ways. 
But we all know that people actually want to know, what does this mean for me today? What does this tell me about who I am? And if you're right. going to completely ignore the question, that's almost worse than like having this split personality kind of thing. Like at least I, it permit, it actually makes perfect sense to me that somebody who's absolutely fascinated with the boundary between science and what might be called non-science or the paranormal would make a character like Holmes. It's almost like a like a talking point or an ideal, mm -hmm. like an ex exploratory tool. That's interesting. I had never really thought of yeah. that. That's interesting. Hmm. I'm not going to disagree with Jeb. Sure, go ahead. No, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I am going to disagree with you. <laughs> because, no, because my argument still stands that I don't, as a writer and as someone who writes characters that are not me, it is a thing to challenge yourself as a writer to write someone who is so opposite you but yet still a compelling character like not necessarily someone you hate but to think about a character that is the exact opposite of everything you believe so like if i were to write someone who was deeply religious it, that's a challenge for me it's also very believable as a character and if people connect with that character i mean that doesn't mean that somewhere deep in the back of my head i am deeply religious as well and i i still can't get past the point past the idea that People are trying really hard to make Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes oh, I, to the I, point I, where they like cannot comprehend how Doyle could be into spiritualism, where Sherlock would be like, whatevs. Well, I agree. I'm, I'm absolutely agreeing with you. I think okay. the fact that it's an opposite is really telling. What I'm saying is you can't say – what I would disagree with is, oh, well, he believed this, but he creates this character and they're not related. I would say there's an absolute relation right. because they're so radical. I mean, here's the thing. Right, but I if think the relation – sorry. Well, I was just saying, if you're on record like creating stories about cursed mummies and absolutely believing in fairies, but your most amazing creation is literally 180 degrees from that, what that's telling me is, no, you should not equate those two, but are you clearly obsessed with the line between the rational and yeah. perhaps the numinous? Yeah, you clearly are. Yeah. Right, and yeah, I think I it was I think it was Doyle's way of dealing with it. Like, I don't yeah. think he was having like an identity crisis or anything, but no. I think it's his way. No. I think Holmes was his way of working his way through these ideas because he did waver in his spiritualism faith and he did waver with his Freemason faith, but in the end, he he doubled down on it. But he also tried to get rid of Sherlock. I mean, let's be honest there. I mean, uh, hey Vincent, when was the last? When was the Reichenbach Falls written? Uh, well, it depends. If you look at it from a chronological point of view inside the stories, that would be 1891. I mean, when was it published? Like, when did it hit the real world? Oh, let's uh, hold on. Let me grab my handy-dandy book here. Uh... There are the two chronologies. There are the chronologies in which they were written. Right. And the chronologies reflected in the stories themselves. And it's it's easy to, to, yeah. to, to muck those up. And then if you're like, I, I've been writing about Lovecraft and his creation a lot, you then get the third, well, when was it published versus, well, when when was he like doing this? When was he right. thinking of sure, these things? Sure. So it gets even more convoluted. December 1893. 1993. Or 1893. So, and he published, you know, he tried to, he tried to kill off Holmes then. And then he came back in 1901 and started uh, producing The Hound of the Baskervilles. Around the time that The Hound of the Baskervilles came out, now he may have had that written before this point, and he just decided to publish it in 1901. But around that time is when he starts getting super spirituals. So, you know, maybe up until that point, maybe Sherlock is a reflection of the time when he was going through his turmoil, you mm. know, his fl yeah. flopping back and yeah. forth. And, 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 
you guys brought up a good. Side, go ahead, Ken. Go ahead, Ken. I was going to say there's a side issue here, and it's for most people, and maybe most people listening to this podcast, they go, "How come they haven't been talking about Moriarty because he's such an important character?" And really, it's not until they, they, that he Moriarty was a plot device that Conan Doyle added. And what was it, the twenty fourth story? So it's it's not until he decides I need to create a character who's so strong and powerful that people will believe he can take out Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and he's just created for that. And in fact, that's there's only that only one story where Moriarty plays a role, and he's mentioned in a handful of the others. But so to, so just to disabuse people of that, Moriarty was an inconsequential character in most of the stories, and he's only introduced kind of as a last minute attempt on the part of Conan Doyle to get rid of in a in a way that people would accept. He thought um, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Vincent, you want to speak to that, and then we'll go to break well, real quick. Well, yeah, we can we can go to break if we want to. I can refill my milk and uh, grab some more chocolate. All right, well, let's go to break, and when we come back, we'll sure. uh, we'll continue this line of questioning. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back. And Ken, you wanted to take this and run? Well, yeah. I mean, just we were talking about the, the connection between Holmes's skepticism about, about the paranormal and Arthur Conan Doyle's embrace of it. But even in non-canonical sources, so, you know, the, the the movies that were made in the 30s and 40s, they start with Hound of the Baskervilles, which is pretty good version of the Hound. It's recognizable. But then after that, it goes all over the place. And there are a lot of the movies that say they are based on specific stories. And man, you have to look really carefully to see the, the essence of those stories. But there is one of the better ones is a movie called The Red Claw, again, with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And in a weird way, it's a ripoff of Hound of, ba- Hound of the Baskervilles because there's a paranormal, phosphorescent, phosphorescently glowing, not dog, but person who's involved in, in these murders. But anyhow, when you first see Sherlock Holmes in The Red Claw, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, they are at a conference in Canada. And the conference mm-hmm. is devoted to the paranormal. And in that, in, in the context of this conference, the leader of the conference, who ultimately becomes the guy whose wife is killed because he knows there's this phosphorescently glowing paranormal entity that, that haunts the, the, the moors of not, not England, but, but in this case, Canada. And he's the, 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 the conference director, the, the, the chairman of the conference, and he's very pro paranormal. And it's Holmes and Watson are there as the skeptics. In fact, Watson, Nigel Bruce, kind of bumbling through it, is almost aggressively skeptical and, in fact, cites Hound of the Baskervilles and the Sussex Vampire yep. as two instances in which Holmes proved that paranormal had nothing to do with it. And Holmes is very, is much more kind of even keeled in saying to the, to this guy who believes in the paranormal, listen, uh, this is all about evidence. We need evidence. And I have not seen any evidence that would convince me of the paranormal. 
this guy is very insulted by that, but then gets the gets this message that you, you have to come home immediately. Your wife has been killed by this paranormal entity. And the, the cool thing, of course, is that Holmes and Watson are about to leave when Holmes receives a message from the dead woman sent to him, obviously <laughs> yeah. before she dies, saying, I'm being haunted. I'm being stalked by something evil. Can you please come? And and this is not Conan Doyle. This is the writer of that movie saying, where Holmes says to Watson, this is the first time that the victim uh, the the victim of a murder has ever contracted yeah. with us to come and solve her murder. He even says it in a more amusing way. He's like, the first time that our client has been a corpse. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it today. I don't have that level of memory. It's the it's the Royal Canadian Occult Society. Yes. And, and the head of it, Lord Pembroke, or whatever his name is. Yeah. He uh, oh, he, yeah. Uh, he um. He, he, he literally says, you know, something like all this damn or all this cursed skepticism. Yes. yes and it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. But the it's Scarlet cool Claw, it's pretty cool. Yeah. But it's cool that it's not – that's not Conan Doyle. That's the script writer putting them in that context. And I thought that was really very interesting. They recognized, oh, yeah, Watson and, and Holmes, they are skeptics. They are debunkers of the paranormal. And I, I like. I think the movie's pretty good. The only problem I have at the very end of the movie, when they're they're hunting for the bad guy, I don't know. They didn't have big budgets in any of these movies. And they, <laughs> although it's Canada, some of the people chasing after the bad guy in the swamps of Canada are wearing British Bobby uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go, you go, holy crap! Do they know they're in Canada? <laughs> I now want to watch the rest of that movie, but I actually saw something very. So I watched about the first half hour today. I just ran yeah. out of time. It wasn't. I didn't stop because I didn't like it. Unlike the what was it, the Neanderthal that we watched the other day. Oh God, um, yes. But uh, it starts off in this tavern, and it looks like everybody's holding still on purpose, like it's supposed to be some kind of freeze frame. Yeah. But then some of them aren't, <laughs> and it's really weird and uncanny yes. and unsettling. And I'm like, either this was very poorly done. Or this was masterfully done. And I don't know which it is. <laughs> I'm not sure either. I'm not sure either. Can't tell if this is it, genius it, it or just yeah. There are also a number of cases in that one where you can see that somebody fluffed their lines, but they just didn't have time to redo it. Yeah. Just, I'm just go with it. Nice. <laughs> but that's all right. It's all oh, right. But it's, I, I enjoyed it. But again, the, the paranormal connection there is, yeah. is very explicit. Well, in, in, in terms of non-canonical and paranormal, I just have to say, I, I and I and I said before we went on air that I'm the I am the Nigel Bruce Watson. I am not the Sherlockian <laughs> that the rest of you are, the the Holmesian that the rest of you are. But, you know, my, honestly, my favorite, not adaptation, but my favorite thing that's touched by it, because it, this is one of my favorite things, is is the X-Files. In the first season in particular, there are numerous clear, okay, we're taking Holmes and Watson and we're shaking up who's who a little, but they're clearly here. Like, oh, he's got like an addiction. In this case, it's porn rather than, you know, cocaine. Oh, and whatever. he's incredibly <laughs> nuts. But he runs when he's around people and he's rude. And we've got our doctor. We're going to make her the skeptic. And they did an episode called Fire that's all about Holmes where uh, Mulder's old girlfriend shows up. And apparently they did it on Holmes uh, on uh, Conan Doyle's gravestone. And they and they referenced this. <laughs> but it's pretty obvious in the first season that they were playing a lot with this. And again, I think it's no accident that. And I, I argue this with, with archaeology and detective stories and the occult and the paranormal in general, that all of these things that involve sort of rationalism, because they're all about rationalism, inherently end up kind of focusing also on the irrational. 
as as yeah. part of what makes mm-hmm. them special. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, because you have you can't have the ultimate skeptic if everybody's skeptical, because then it's just oh, you're average. And right. I, and, I, <laughs> right. and, I, and it's like because the problem, like look at modern look at modern television today, and I, I don't know how many of you guys watch like everything on television like I do, uh-huh. but I mean the concept of the Sherlock character is everywhere not just by name i mean every television show especially if it's like a cop drama or like csi he's become our greatest superhero almost well yeah but like every show has a sherlock like every show has a sherlock the show house in fact they chose the name house because it's well you know get holmes house and he was Sherlock Holmes. And yeah, he, lived, he was he a he medical doctor. B. He lived yes, at 221B. He, he actually is his yeah. partner, Wilson. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. You very, got... very clever. Right. Yeah, yeah very clever. You and you know, house, the you first four seasons were great. And then it went downhill yeah. from there. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well. hey, Vincent, are you familiar with, I know that in Arthur Conan Doyle's life at some point, that twice he actually explicitly applied Sherlockian reason and got two guys out of prison? He did. He did. Well, he got he kept one of them from going to prison and got the okay. other one out of prison. Yeah. Now, the one that out of prison, I'm not as familiar with. But the one where he was able to convince a jury that um, a man by the name of George Idalji uh, was arrested for, I think it was mutilating cattle or something like oh, that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and um, he was able to prove in court. And if you look at a picture of George Adalji, you can kind of tell that there's something up with this guy, but he was able to prove in court <laughs> that Mr. Adalji's eyesight was so bad that he wouldn't even go outside at night because he couldn't see a thing and he was able to keep Adalji from uh, from actually going to jail for cattle mutilation. And I think I think it was that he was that they said he was he was causing them to become lame that he was cutting tendons in their legs. Yeah, which is yeah. interesting because that was one of the things in the the adventure of Silver Blaze. Silver Blaze, that's that correct. Was that was the theme of that story that somebody was intending to to make lame this incredible racehorse and was practicing on sheep. That's right. Yeah. The guy that uh, the guy that the dog didn't bark at is the one who was doing all. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so yeah. so I think it's interesting that 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 he embraced that. Um, I don't think we've talked about where the, the Holmes character, what was the inspiration? What, what was Conan Doyle's inspiration for the Holmes character? Who was the guy he based Holmes on? Doyle actually based Holmes on a man that was a teacher of his, a professor of his at college by the name of Dr. Joseph Bell. Um, Dr. Bell had the ability to uh, deduce or induce. Uh, the, those two terms are often uh, twisted uh, incorrectly. Uh, he was able to deduce or induce a patient's problem as they walked in the room without saying a word or giving any information whatsoever. Um, and this fascinated Doyle. Uh, when he was out of college and he'd, uh, he'd, uh, come home from, um, a whaling trip that he had, he'd been on a whaling boat for some time and was a doctor with no patience whatsoever, no business of any kind, decided right. to, to decided to write a story using a detective that didn't didn't just happen upon his clues, not by chance. He wanted somebody who was able to do what what Bell was able to do and figure things out uh, just by just by looking and thinking as opposed to stumbling upon the things that would give away the ending of a story and give away right. the solution. Um, there's a, and there's he actually a, sold that story for 25 pounds and never made another dime off of it. That's right. Uh, yeah. There's a wonderful thing. Doyle, Doyle described um, being in Dr. Bell's presence, and, and this is at the, at the medical college, and a patient walks in, and what he describes happening 
if he had changed the name, it would it was Sherlock Holmes. Oh, he very tells, much. Yeah. He tells the people, okay, this man, you've been in the military. He knew where he had served in the military. He guessed about how long he had been removed from the military. And all these, the, the, the students are saying, well, did you ask this guy before that? He goes, no, no, no. I can tell just by looking at him. And you have to learn to be able to do that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's purely, it's pure Sherlock Holmes. Exactly. And that's exactly where he got the, the idea for that. And it became, it wasn't terribly popular with the first story, but the second story, um, which is the, the, the sign of four, the sign of the four, uh, right. became, uh, considerably more popular. And all of a sudden it just, it just kind of took off. It took a couple mm -hmm. of years, but it finally took off to the point where Doyle didn't have to worry about patients coming into his door anymore. <laughs> um, and, you know, when we talk about why he would choose to write uh, about a uh, a mirror image, a 180 degree image uh, of himself. When it comes to these these topics, um, it's possible that it comes down to just the simplest explanation in the world: money. Um, it simply right. paid the bills. It bought his houses. It bought his cars. It bought his skis and his motorcycles. Um, his kids, the private education and tutors and all these things. Um, so when we look at it later on in his life, again. Uh, going back to what his daughter said, it determined how long we were at sea, basically, you know. Um, and you can tell with some of the stories, um, specifically like stories like The Adventure of the Three Gables or The Master in Stone, which in my opinion is the most non-canonical story in the entire 60, <laughs> that he just kind of whips these out um, and admits later on that he didn't really worry about facts. He just kind of uh, said, well, here's you another story. Here's my, give me my check. <laughs> And that's, I think that's a big part of what it, it possibly could have been. The thinking that, that, uh, that the character was in some way his, his other, his other, the other part of his brain when it comes to thinking about spiritualism, that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's probably been beaten to death in the books that I haven't read. So I'm not, I can't really speak to it too well, but it, it certainly makes sense. However, I'm, I, I lean toward a more pragmatic side when it comes to things like this, and I just like to think that it's probably just cash. Yeah. You had mentioned, just this is kind of tangential, you had mentioned Undershaw, which was this mansion that he, uh, was this sort of late in his in his cycle of writing stories, the, his, the construction of Undershaw? It was. The mansion? It, was yeah. it was after 1900. It was after he had gotten his knighthood, which he did not get for the Sherlock Holmes stories, by the way. He got right. historical novels and right. his work in the Boer War. Right. Um, it was after was after 1900, uh, somewhere around 1904. He had the house built. 19 uh, he he started writing. Or 1901 he had the house built, and he he started writing on the Hound of the Baskervilles. He only owned the house for about 10 years, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, just abandoned it basically. Yeah. That's, uh, a, that's an interesting point though. Of cash. He didn't have to worry yeah. about anything. Conan Doyle was knighted, and in the stories, Sherlock Holmes Refused. turns down a knighthood. That's right. He does. Yeah. That's right. But, uh, uh, but about Undershaw, that's just the so one eighty thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. About Undershaw, everybody should know that 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 his mansion it still exists. It does. Um, it was purchased by a private company, and they were going to gut it and put it in a school. And there is a society dedicated to preserving Undershaw. They want it to be a, a Sherlock Holmes at Conan Doyle Museum. And I guess I don't know. The, the, the formalities in Great Britain in terms of historic preservation and what boards there are and what the process is. Um, but apparently when this organization attempted to get this placed on what effectively is the National Register in England, the response was, it's only Arthur Conan Doyle. He wasn't Shakespeare or Jane Austen. The house isn't that important. 
which pisses I, me off. That, that really is unfortunately true. Now the uh, the Undershaw Preservation Trust no longer exists. Oh, all right. Um, they they in essence didn't win. Uh, the house is still there. It's actually been refurbished and remodeled and added onto. Um, and the grounds have been redone, uh, and all of this has been made into a school for special needs children called Stepping Stones. Mm-hmm. Um, so it still lives on. Uh, they, the part of the house is is kind of museumish, but it's not actually a museum. But they they've tried to restore some of the original uh, woodwork and uh, furnishings and things of that nature. They have the rooms listed. This is his study. This was his living room. So on and so forth. So the actual Undershaw building, the original house which is the size of a football field, um, is still there, but now it is being used for something else. Uh, and as a matter of fact, some of the, the pastiches that I've written uh, for a particular um, particular company, particular publishing company uh, in England, all of the, all of the royalties uh, go to uh, that particular stepping stone school. I've never made a dime off of any of them, and neither have any of the other uh, authors who put, a, who put uh, stories in these yeah. books. Uh, but oh, yeah, but, it's still there, um, and yeah. it's still called Undershaw, but it's now a school called Stepping Stones. Right. A couple of years ago, I actually wrote whoever the, the the director of the Preservation Society was, and I pointed out the irony that here I live in Connecticut, and in Connecticut, uh, William Gillette's house, and William Gillette played Sherlock Holmes more than anybody else did on right. on stage. And was in fact Sherlock Holmes in the silent movie that oh, just a couple of years ago, I guess they rediscovered the print. And I, it's wonderful. Right. It is um, very- Will, William Gillette's home is a state park and yeah. is preserved yeah. by the state of Connecticut. Yeah. And it's, here's a guy who made a living portraying this guy's character. We thought enough of his house that it's preserved as a historical monument and museum. But in England, you can't do that for the, the, the author who created that character. I thought it was, yeah, and- was horribly ironic. Okay, so that let's is, that... uh, let's bring this back a little bit, though, back to archaeology, because, um, like, that's in the title of the show and stuff. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it should be really easy to do, because, you know, we've been talking about Sherlock Holmes, and of course he's known for his great analytical mind and his great detectiveness and all that kind of stuff. And I think people don't, you know, in the last five minutes of the show here, um, I don't think people understand how much detective work goes into the field of archaeology. And, Jeb, I think you have kind of brought this up and this kind of plays into the the um uh, the way people use victorian ideas to do uh fraudulent archaeology that you've brought up a few times well i mean uh definitely the detective seems to be one of these and and we we've name dropped one um cornelius holtorf on this uh show before uh for various reasons but he actually does write in a good way in his book archaeology is a brand exclamation point um about the detective as one of the sort of the four images of of the archaeologist and the detective has been called by many people sort of that that quintessential victorian character the victorian investigator uh and you can see why we're thought of in the same way on the one hand it's like well you're following clues you're trying to reconstruct the past you're, you're trying to sort of take things from the present and figure out what happened before right now. We're just not always trying to solve a murder, although that occasionally does happen when we're doing, you know, paleopathology and such. <laughs> um, but once you do that, not only are you kind of going back to when this is at such a, uh, a height, you know, in the Victorian era, as we were talking about earlier, you can't go too far in the detective and get too far away from intrigue and mystery. And then that way, in fact, often does lie 
the paranormal and the supernatural. And in fact, many early detective stories come out of the gothic tradition. We were kind of talking about that earlier. And one of their big evolutions is to try to get away from that with whether it's the, the, you know, the sitting room uh, style or the hard-boiled style. But it's never entirely all that far away if you're talking about mystery and death and, and rationality. And, and I think that that then kind of carries over to, to a lot of archaeology. I think it's a lot of the similar things. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think agree. archaeologists, I think, well, part of the problem is, is we're trying to reconstruct what happened based on evidence. Like we, we can't, there, there aren't eyewitness accounts at this point. We might have some written documents, but we don't have like legit eyewitnesses and that kind of stuff. And even if we did, they're unreliable. So like everything that we do, we have to infer from the physical evidence that's in front of us. But at the same time, you see the same kind of tactics being attempted by people on the fringe side who are saying, well, I see this and I see that. And if I see A and B, then it must mean C. And, you know, they they think they're using the same kind of Sherlockian logic to, to draw the same, to draw their conclusions yeah. that we're using in a scientific basis to well, get if the you conclusions sound- that we're drawing. If you want to sound smart, why wouldn't you try to sound like Sherlock Holmes? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah, because he's like the, the smart guy, you know, everybody's, right. no one's smarter than Sherlock. Well, yeah. actually, he has a brother that's seven years old. Well, right, right, right. right. Yes. Mycroft. Yes. True. Even smarter, right? Yeah. I do yeah. like Mycroft. Yes. No, yes. that's, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, ha- have any of the people that we've talked about, uh, you know, with their, with their, where they're, undigging north america and all of that have they ever decided they're part of the diogenes club maybe that's where they keep the oreos maybe that's where they do (laughs) absolutely i you know i now need to find these things out absolutely well guys um vincent do you have any final thoughts on this whole this whole thing that we've drug you into this week This has been an absolute blast. Uh, I I hope at some point I can be your, uh, again, air quote, professional again on this subject. Uh, Uh, I I can talk about this for days and days and days. Vincent, this this really was fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, This was great. We have have name-dropped Sherlock Holmes a number of times in the podcast, so being able to actually talk to an expert and to focus on my personal life hero, uh, (laughs) Sherlock Holmes, uh, it, it's been a blast. It's been, it's yeah, been I wasn't great. sure I needed another reason to like you, but uh, I've <laughs> there you a thousand more. So, uh. <laughs> well, listen, man, wait, just wait until you. I send you. I see it. You sent me your email address. Wait until I send you my story before you make any any summary judgments. Sure, sure. And and let me have my last my last question. Um, I last year went to the museum uh, at two twenty one B Baker Street. I, I presume mm-hmm. I presume you've been. No, actually, I'm afraid to fly across the ocean. Would you believe that crap? Oh, no. I can't even go to the Holy Land because of my fear of flying across the ocean. <laughs> uh, Do we need to well, drug I, your milk? Uh, well, oh, very nice. You know, Something that, like that would be would have to happen for me to be able to go over there. <laughs> well, I just will say it, uh, I, I can send some – actually, I can send you a, a blog post. I've got some pictures of it, but I was curious as to what your opinion is. And I think I am, I am an amateur at this, but I think they did a decent job. So uh, I just figured I'd mention that. And, well, and it would point out, though, Jeff, that there really is no 221B there is no. Street. It's all made up. Well, but it, there is now. <laughs> oh, we could do and a that, whole show about that. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Is Vincent, this... I, I actually have read a couple of, of – there are a couple of Sherlockians who actually have gone through the canon, I mean, really meticulously, and they think they know where it really is based on what Holmes can see from his window. And, and so they've got a different talking... location entirely. Yeah, you're talking to one of them. 
I, oh, they're all, sorry. Nice. I, I, went, I, didn't, I didn't call them crazy people, right? I just said <laughs> Sherlockian. It so. doesn't matter. We understand <laughs> we're, a, we're a, a strange group, so we, we get that. Well, Vincent, thank you very much for being on the show. Ken awesome. and Jeb, thanks for joining us on the call. Great fun. It. it has been great fun, and I will talk to everybody later. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Trials as one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to rate and like us wherever you listen. Be sure to comment on this episode and share us with your friends. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show page. Show notes and downloads can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can also follow the blog at archiefantasies.com and follow us on Twitter at archiefantasies. Music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcast Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.